This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 17. As we continue this study of the life of Abraham, looking at a, a walk of faith, we come to chapter 17, verses 15 through 27. This is a chapter where God is renewing his covenant with Abraham for the third time. The unique aspect of this covenant renewal is actually two. He changes the name, God changes the name of Abram to Abraham and from Sarah to Sarah. And in this reiteration of the covenant, God also gives them the sign of circumcision to recognize that through the name change and through this act that their very identity is shaped by God, that they belong to Him. But there's still this struggle that Abraham and Sarah are having. God, you've promised and you have said that we will become a great nation. But time is moving on. How and when, O Lord? So let's pick up in verses 15 through 27 as we consider the path of God's promise. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may may live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with them, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. The Lord indeed has blessed members of our congregation 
with many, many talents. We heard those that are singing today, and I'm so grateful for them. But there's a, a group that's often overlooked for the way they serve this congregation and the manner in which they do it. And it's those who have stepped out being willing to drive our small bus outside. I mention them because I appreciate them greatly because that's something I would be too nervous to ever attempt. And as I say this, please know that I hold all of those drivers in the highest of esteem. But I have to confess there is one that stands out to me for her fearlessness and her proudness at driving. And that's Lori McCorkle. Yeah, give her a round of applause. Now, the reason, the reason I single Lori out, and as I said, all you drivers, I appreciate you. But Lori has driven that church bus several times through the street of Brooklyn, New York. Whew, that's, that's worth admiration. But even more than that, she navigated that bus on Indian Trail number seven in New Mexico. Now, if you understood what Indian Trail 7 was like, you would have given her a standing ovation. About 10 years ago, we had taken a mission trip to the Navajo Reservation in New York. And we had set aside one day to kind of rest and do a little bit of sightseeing. So we decided on that day we were going to travel to Canyon de Chez to, to hike the canyon. Now, the GPSs were around, still a little bit new, but we got out of our GPS, topped in Canyon de Chez, and the shortest route from where we were just outside of Gallup to Canyon de Chez was Indian Route 7. So a group of us loaded on the bus being driven by Lori and with the eagerness and anticipation of the joys that lay ahead of us as we hiked this, this arid climate, we set out. Everything began well. We started down a highway, took a ride on a two-lane street going through a, a town. And that street led us out of the town. And as civilization faded into the background, so did the asphalt underneath the wheels of the bus. We soon found ourselves on a gravel road. No problem. It's New Mexico. We have a pioneering spirit. We're going to a canyon to hike. We'll keep pressing on until eventually that gravel road became a distant memory, and we were on a dirt road now. We press on. We've come too far to turn back now, especially when that dirt road became a farm trail. And we understood why they called it Indian Trail Number 7. I kid you not, we were seeing prairie dogs on the side of the road, and we even saw a cattle's skull there. And we were thinking, we're going to have to start counting our food and rationing out water. Who's going to go and bring people back to the survivors? But we pressed on until eventually we made it an hour and a half later to the National Park at Canyon de Chez. We walked in and the first thing I asked the ranger working there is, is there another way out of here other than Indian Trail number 7? And she responded by saying, you didn't come in here on Indian Trail 7, did you? Nobody takes Indian Trail 7. And I said, Trinity did. <laughs> After it was over and we'd hiked, she explained to us, you just go out of the state park, hang a left, and about 10 minutes you'll come to the highway, and 30 minutes you're back in Gallup. Now here's the point I'm making with this little story. We had one destination, there were two different paths. Now, please don't misunderstand there is only one way to heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him. That's the only way to heaven. 
But the reality is, is that believers, as we are on the journey, they're often different paths that God lays out for us that we have to travel. Some of those routes are smooth. They're the highway. Now, everybody has tribulations, bumps in the road. Jesus said that. That's the reality of life. We have to confess that some of us feel like we're stuck on Indian Route 7 in life. And we're wondering, when is it going to get easier? God, when are you going to come through on these problems? Why does life have to be so difficult? In many ways, we stand like Abraham did. Lord, when and how are you going to fulfill this? You see, God had given Abraham a promise. You're going to father a great nation. But the only problem was Abraham and Sarah had not had their first child. Time was moving on. They are 99 right now. They've gotten their AARP cards twice over. When, Lord? They'd even developed their own plan. Sarah developed this plan that she would give her servant Hagar to Abraham and he would have a child by her that then would carry on the promise. But that did not work out as they thought because God comes back and he reiterates that, you know what? That's not the way things are going to work out for you. Now, we do not share, or let me phrase it like this. We share in the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. That promise of being a great nation is fulfilled in Christ. That's what Paul points out in both Romans and Galatians. In Jesus Christ, we are the fulfillment as the people of God of what he promised Abraham, as numerous as the stars in the sky. So we cannot necessarily claim that promise, but there are other promises that he has made to us. Promises that we wonder, Lord, how is this going to work out? All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. You ever been in a situation where you've thought, I don't see how. I promise to be with you, never forsake you. Lord, where are you? I feel distant from you. The pain of this, this moment, the pain of this circumstance is so difficult, Lord, I don't know if I can make it. Have you ever asked the question, why me, Lord? You're in good company. Because there are times of struggle in the life of every saint where we will say, Lord, I don't understand this. So this morning from this text, I want to give us three things to carry with us. These are not necessarily profound. Many of these are things that we know. But every now and then in the middle of the storm, we need to be reminded that the boat we're on will hold water. We'll be okay. The first thing is this. I want you to remember that no matter the path that God takes in your life in fulfilling his promises is this. You are not out of his grace. Not for one moment. You see, it's very easy that the Lord, that the enemy would prey upon us by saying, well, if God really loved you, then why would this happen? And even at times in our own thinking, we fall into Eastern philosophical thought and say, well, Lord, if I had done everything right, this shouldn't be happening. Bad things happen to bad people. So, Lord, what have I done? And the answer at times may be absolutely nothing wrong. Now, I draw your attention to this point based upon two people in this passage. Sarah and Ishmael. Notice as God begins to reiterate his promise to Abraham, he mentions Sarah specifically, changing her name in verse 15. And ironically, the name change did not signify a different meaning, but just a reminder that it is the covenant we have with God that shapes our identity. And then notice in verse 16, the Lord takes another step. 
I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, the reason I emphasize the, the feminine pronoun in this is because it's repeated, plus the fact that a covenant was made and included a woman would have been shocking at the time of Abraham. It was truly a culture that was steeped in patriarchal attitudes where men were the only ones through whom the deity would dwell. And here is God saying, I'm including your wife in this. She's going to be blessed. She's going to become the one who gives nations and kings will come from her. That is the grace of God. And it's a specific reminder to Sarah because remember, a woman's pride in this culture of Abraham was found in having children. So Sarah's bearing that weight of, you've got to be cursed by God. You're 90 years old and you've not had a child. What's wrong with you? God says, absolutely nothing. I'm working my plan in her life according to my timing. So to Sarah, this was an incredible reminder that even though it seemed like she was in the desert, God's grace was sustaining her. The other point of this is Ishmael. Verses 25 and 26, notice Ishmael was included in the covenant. He received the sign of circumcision. Notice also in verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. Ishmael, born of Hagar, out of a poorly and even sinfully conceived plan by Sarah and Abraham, was still blessed by God. You know what that is? Grace. It was imperfect, it was sinful, yet God says, I'm going to give grace even to one who does not deserve it, even to one who came about because of a plan implemented without seeking me. And even though the child Isaac is the child of promise, the one through whom the promise of a Messiah will be fulfilled, Ishmael will be blessed and included in the covenant. See, it's a reminder that our trials do not mean that God has forgotten us. The waiting we have to endure does not mean that God has forgotten His grace. It means that no matter where we are, we can have confidence that God is working within us to accomplish His plan. And that plan is by grace extended to all. Take a look at those who came to Jesus for just a moment. And you recognize the variety of circumstances they came from was a, a, a reminder teaching us of God's grace. You could really look at two groups. And I try to stay away from labels. But when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you saw that he reached both the outcast and the incast. <laughs> he reached those who were on the fringe and those who were in that, that list of up-and-comers. This is what I mean. Think about those that were on the fringe. You would have included four different groups. Tax collectors. Nobody wanted to be around a tax collector. I mean, think about it how you feel even now. If you walk to the mailbox and you get a letter that's marked I-R-S. Don't you feel your knees get just a little bit weak? What? That's how they felt then, too. But yet, who were those that followed Jesus? Matthew, tax collector. Zacchaeus, tax collector. And even with Zacchaeus, Jesus says, come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house today. They were on the fringe. A second group, women. It's amazing when you look at the ministry of Jesus, how he broke those social barriers. Meeting a woman at the well, a woman who was an outcast, even among the outcasts. Who had to come to the well by herself to get water in the hottest part of the day because she had been married five times and was right then living with someone. And why did Jesus tell her, if you knew the water I could give you, you wouldn't be coming to this well. 
And she runs back into town and tells everybody, I've met the Savior. Do you know among those that followed Jesus, there was Mary Magdalene, who actually qualified for two of these outcast groups. Not only was she a woman, she was demon-possessed. But yet God calls her. In Jesus, she comes, and she's included in his grace. The past of these people, their lives, was difficult. Then you look on the other side. One of the compatriots of the Apostle Paul was Luke. Well-educated. A doctor, a man probably of some means, called and received the grace of God. We tend to think of fishermen out on the outcast and those that were excluded. But I would remind you, the fishermen, James, John, the sons of Zebedee, Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen. And what that meant on the Sea of Galilee is this. They were small business owners. That was their business. There would have been a shingle. Zebedee fishing, come, fresh fish. That's what, that was their living. They would have been part of the chamber of commerce there in Galilee and Capernaum seeking to, to sell their wares. And here is Jesus calling them. There's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, part of the, the upper class. And you know what all these people had in common? The grace of God given them through Jesus Christ. Did Jesus love one group more than the other? No. Grace was given to each of them. And that is the beauty and the irony of grace. It's given to all. And yet sometimes God takes us on a path where it's through our weaknesses that he receives the most glory. That happened with the Apostle Paul. A man granted to see up into the very presence of God's throne room, the third heaven. And when he finishes the vision, God says, Paul, because I do not want you to become filled with pride, I'm giving you a thorn in the flesh. Now, scholars have debated what that thorn was. Some have said it was chronic dysentery. Some have said it was bad eyesight. Some have even said it was the, the pain and the, the abuse his body had taken as he suffered on the missionary trail. The fact is, we don't know. And I think one of the reasons for that is this, so that no matter what his thorn was, we can identify with it. So Paul prays three times, Lord, take this away. Take it away, O oh God. And each time God says no to him. But he says, what? Paul, my grace is sufficient. It is in your weakness that my grace is made perfected. Now, we don't understand God's plan at times. But this is where we come to this reality. God's grace and power is shown more, more in our trials than it is in our victories. So why does God choose one for one path and one for the other? I don't have a clear answer for that. Other than this second point, the path of God's promise is by God's design. The why question we may not know. But we can rest assured that if God has placed us on a particular path, whether it be smooth or difficult, it's by His design. Verse 17 Abram falls on his face when God has said, you're going to have a, have a baby. Now, the falling on his face is an act of worship. But I love the reality of his response here. He laughed. <laughs> God, I'm going to be a father. <laughs> God, don't you know I'm a hundred? That ship has sailed. No, Abraham, you're going to be a father. And it's interesting that even, even in verse 18, he gives God a suggestion. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, I draw your attention back to verse 1 of chapter 17. Notice what God says to Abram. 
I am God Almighty. Walk before me. In other words, live your life before me. So in verse 17 or verse 18, where Abram says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He is saying, God, let Ishmael be the child. Let Ishmael be the one. He's 13. He's a young man. He's here. It makes perfect logical sense. But you know what? Our God often acts beyond what seems logical. And he does it to bring greater glory to his name. Because notice in this, God doesn't even take that under advisement. It's like the old cliche. You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. No, Abraham. Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and his name will be Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. He is saying, Abraham, trust me, I am not done with my work yet. Now, the truth is that you and I are often not privy to the why of God's workings. We do have some theological framework. We know that ultimately God will be glorified in our lives. That's what we want. We know that He will give us grace to persevere. But it's not always clear why He chooses to place us on one path rather than another. It's like standing at a parade. If you were to go to New York City and Thanksgiving Day and stake out a place there on, on, the path, on the road, you would watch as the parade filed in front of you. And you would see one aspect of it at a time. One part at a time. But it's, if you looked from the view of the Goodyear blimp above it, you see the race from fin start to finish and everything in between. You see the turns that it will take. You see who's in it. You see, our view is this moment. What we don't see is the entire scope. That's what God sees. That's what God knows. For us to get to this point, we need to go through this to work for His glory. And the thing is, is that God is not just seeing this moment and your life. Our God is seeing generations down the road. Do you ever stop to think for just a moment that should the Lord Jesus tarry in His return, God may be doing something in your life right now to impact your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and even your great-great-grandchildren. Think about what it has taken to get you to this point right here. That 200 years ago, your great-great-great-great-grandfather met your great-great-great-great-grandmother, and they fell in love. They just happened to fall in love and have a child. Who then met your great-great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandmother, and they found somebody. You get the point? All these things happening over time to lead us to God's plan. He sees the whole. I often think of the words of the hymn written by William Cooper. You know the first phrase of it. God works in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. But my favorite line in that song comes later. I believe it's in the second verse. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. We can't sit in judgment upon God for He is God. And He is good. So we trust in His grace. We trust in His providence. And this is the third point. This is the most challenging. No matter what road He has placed us on, walk it faithfully. Do you see in verses 22 through 27, there's one phrase that's emphasized over and over again. Not just the phrase circumcised, but that very day. Verse 23, that very day they were circumcised. And then even again in verse 26, that very day. Get the obedience that Abraham engaged in. When the Lord left after this vision, this theophany, what does he do? 
Abraham acts sacrificially and immediately and in a way that is all-encompassing. That very day he acted in obedience. Nothing to go on but God's word. That is our calling, to act in obedience, in trust, and to say, this is the path the Lord has left, laid, us, laid before us. Let us walk it as best we can. You can look through history and see examples of this. In the 19th century, there were two great figures in Baptist life. There were many great figures in that time, but two I point out now. One is named Adoniram Judson, first Baptist missionary, first missionary into Burma. Landed in Burma in July of 1813 where it was a nice, smooth, welcoming 108 degrees. He suffered that first, well, throughout his whole ministry there from chronic dysentery, malaria, cholera, you name it, the disease, it was there. He spent 17 months in prison, often shackled to a bamboo rod. As he was working on translating the New Testament into the Burmese language, it was all destroyed in a fire one night. His wife and his oldest child died in Burma. And after seven years, he'd seen one convert. That's a hard road. On the other end of the spectrum, later, later in the 19th century, a man rose to prominence in England by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Now, Spurgeon had his struggles. He struggled with depression. He was involved in numerous controversies. But I think, honestly, we have to look at Spurgeon's life and Adoniram Judson and say they were two very different roads. Spurgeon pastored in London, preached to thousands upon thousands. His sermons are still in print today. Now, were both men faithful? Yes. Were both men called of God? Yes. Were both men recipients of His grace? Yes. But God had different plans for them. See, what happens is we get caught up in comparing ourselves with others. Why can't my life be like theirs? And that problem has been magnified because of the proliferation of social media. We're inundated with images of all those around us who quote-unquote have the perfect life. And can I tell you right now, no one, no one has the perfect life. And we start looking around thinking, God, why couldn't that be me instead of them? Why can't I have that? And it breathes in our hearts a discontentment that begins to fester and causes anger and jealousy and envy. And we begin withdrawing from other relationships. Jesus began to deal, deal with a problem like that. Not social media, but this issue of comparison. John 21, Jesus is standing on the, the shore of the Lake of Galilee. Peter has swam to him and has gotten up and they've enjoyed a, a breakfast of fish over a charcoal fire together. The other disciples arrived and Peter looks at the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he asks him a question. What about him, Lord? What about him? Now, I believe the disciple whom Jesus loved was Lazarus. So Peter's saying, you brought Lazarus back from the dead. What are you going to do with him now? And Jesus said, if I want him to live till I come back, that's between me and him. Peter, you follow me. Peter, don't compare yourself to that disciple. You follow me. Peter, don't get caught up in the comparison game. My plan for you may be different than my plan for him. Trust me. Walk faithfully. Today, that's my encouragement to you. God is not slack in His promises. He is faithful and true. 
His grace is sufficient. His plan, even though we may not understand it, is perfect. And our call is to walk in obedience. And that will result in joy. As interesting as it is, joy becomes a theme through the remainder of Abraham's narrative in Genesis. Abraham laughs. Sarah laughs. God has the last laugh because their son Isaac literally means he laughs. So joy becomes this theme. And I think it's when we can humble ourselves to God's providence and power, we have joy. I came across a saying the other day that really struck me. I think its profundity will hit you also. You don't have to wear a parachute to skydive. You only have to wear a parachute if you want to skydive twice. You see, a person can go up in an airplane and say, I want freedom up here. I want to be free. I don't want to, I want to go and I want to just, man, I'm gone. <laughs> well, you know what will happen. But when you accept the laws of gravity and say, you know what, if I'm going to enjoy this trip out of this plane, I better put on a parachute. When you accept and humble yourself before that, then you can really enjoy skydiving again and again and again. If we fight against God and become angry and resentful, we won't know joy. Grace, God's plan, faithfulness will result in joy. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me now, if you will. I know the question we often want to get to most of all is why. But I have learned the answer to that question won't satisfy our souls because often we will come up with an excuse as to how a different way would have been better. The better question is, Lord, how? How should I live on the path you've placed me on? And I hope this morning you've been reminded that God's grace is sufficient, His plan is perfect. And he calls for us just to be faithful. Doesn't mean we won't cry out in prayer. Doesn't mean we won't weep together. But it means that in the midst of it all, we will find hope. And I pray you know that hope today. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And after this prayer, we're going to stand and sing. And while we sing, if you want to come and pray, this altar is open to that. The Lord is open. He hears. Just call out unto him. Father, I praise you because you are sovereign over all things. And Lord, we recognize we live in a fallen world where there is pain, there is hurt, there is sin, and there is brokenness. And Father, our lives are impacted by all those things. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We don't always understand your plan. We don't know the why. So Father, I just pray that you'll bring us back just like you did Abraham and Sarah, to your grace and your perfect plan. Grant this that we might know joy in the name of Jesus. Amen.